verses 1 through 32. So if you'd like to find that in your Bible or your device, whatever, and follow along as I read. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to use one of the red Bibles in the pew in front of you. Once again, from Romans 11, verses 1 through 32. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? 
I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God and now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to the disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God and Father, as we study your word, I pray that you would teach us and shape us through it and draw us more and more to know you. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So instead of some kind of fun intro, we have an insane amount of ground to cover this morning, if you can't tell from the length of that scripture reading. Um, So we're going to jump right in, but first, especially because I know on a Sunday like this one that we have a number of people who haven't been with us for this, so we've been preaching through the book of Romans all year, since January. We took a break for um, a few weeks for Lent, but otherwise we've been doing this thing all year, and... um, And the very big picture of what's been going on is in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul lays out this big picture of Christianity and the good news of the gospel, that all of us are sinful, um, whether you are irreligious or religious, you are a sinner um, who has no hope of saving yourself, and God in his grace worked in Jesus to work salvation for us, and we're saved by trusting in that. And then because of that, there's all of these benefits and blessings that Paul explores. That's the first eight chapters of Romans. And then starting in chapter 9, Paul starts exploring this specific question that for his readers would have arisen out of that, which is, okay, so if that's true, then what about Israel? That God in the Old Testament had this one specific people that he was working through and had made these promises to. And some of those people are becoming Christians, like Paul and the other apostles, but some of them aren't. So what about Israel? And as we've worked through Romans 9 and 10, we have seen Paul start to answer that question, but he hasn't really arrived at the answer to it. And I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been with us in the last few weeks that we've looked at it, we keep saying this is the question and we keep kind of starting about it, but we haven't really gotten to the place where it's answered. And here in Romans 11 is where Paul kind of finally gives the answer which is why we're going to try to cover this whole chapter, except for the last few verses this morning, because starting next week we'll be taking a break for Advent, and I felt like it would be better to try to, to plow through this thing and, and get the full sense of that answer than to take a break in the middle and then pick up in a month and a half when we've all lost track of what's happening. But if you're a visitor, hold on, because it's going to be a bit of a ride. <laughs> so um, let's just dive into the text, starting in Romans 11.1. 1. Paul writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, I am an Israelite myself. 
a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul revisits that question he's been asking throughout these two chapters. Did God reject his people? And, um, and Paul gives the first part of his answer here, which he says, by no means, I am an Israelite myself. He points to himself. He says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm Jewish, and I'm one of these people, a Christian and an apostle. How does that start to answer it? Well, if you keep reading in verse 2, Paul says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? So Paul says, God did not reject his people, but he adds this qualifying phrase, whom he foreknew. And if that sounds familiar... It's because Paul used it back in Romans 8. He says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That foreknowing is part of how Paul talks about God's choice to seek and save certain people. And again, if you're a visitor with us or if you weren't there for that, I know that that's the kind of idea that raises a lot of questions. And I'm going to cheat a little bit this morning because we don't have time to dig into all of those questions and just say the sermons are all online. And if you are interested in that idea, go listen to the sermon on Romans 8, 28 through 30 and also the sermon on the middle of Romans 9 where Paul also talks about that. But, but Paul's saying God saves those that he foreknew in Israel. And he illustrates that in verses 3 and 4 from the Old Testament. He talks about Elijah, and this is under this king named Ahab, who is this wicked king in Israel. And he's leading all of the people astray. And he slaughters all of God's prophets, like the pastors and teachers. And Elijah is the only one that survives. And he comes to God and he says, God, what are you doing? Is there no other faithful person left? And then in verse 4... And what was God's answer to him? He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal is this false god. And so Israel goes astray, but God says that I'm still in control and saving my people because I have this faithful remnant of 7,000 people that are still mine. And then Paul compares that to his own moment in verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And it's really important to stress that by grace, which in verse 6 is what Paul really emphasizes, he's not saying that there are some good people and they're the ones who trust in Jesus and are saved and that everyone else is bad people. He's saying that everyone left to themselves is sinful and goes astray, but that God is showing grace and mercy through Jesus to some of them. And then in verse 7, Paul explains what this means. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And this is a reference to the language of Romans 9, in which, again, there were some hard ideas there, and we spent a lot of time wrestling with them, but that in Scripture, God is sovereign in the world, and ultimately, he will save those who he chooses to save. And that is those who trust in him and have faith in Jesus, but that that's ultimately a thing that's up to God, and that's how it works in Scripture. And again, you can go back and listen to those sermons because we can't dig into all of that today. But then Paul gives a couple of Old Testament quotations to stress this fact, to stress the fact that it's always been the case that you've had this kind of people of God and that some of them are faithful and that God is saving and that some of them aren't. And so he cites several Old Testament examples of that. And then that's kind of stage one of his answer, all right? 
So he says, many in Israel have rejected Jesus as God's Messiah, but a number of people have also embraced him, and it's always actually been that way for God's people. They are um, always been the case that you've kind of had this remnant that are faithful and others who are not. And so then, just as now, God's promises haven't failed. God shows his faithfulness through working that salvation. There's a lot there already, but let me just note two things about that that are important as we try to understand Paul's answer here. The first one just has to do with how we're going to interpret this whole chapter, and you start to see it if you look at verse 7, all right? So in that verse, we see Israel talked about in three different ways at the same time. Do you see that in that verse? Israel can mean everyone in ethnic Israel. That's the first way he uses it. What the people of Israel sought, that means everyone, you know, who's kind of an outwardly ethnic Israel. But then he also talks about um, the elect in Israel, those in Israel who trust and are faithful and are being saved. And he talks about those who are hardened. Um, There's Israel in the sense of those who are rejecting this and don't believe. So Paul talks about Israel in all three of those senses here. Ethnic Israel and faithful Israel and faithless Israel. And that's going to get important as we continue to walk through the chapter and as we continue to try to understand it, because one of the main questions we're going to have to ask is, okay, at this point, when Paul talks about Israel, who's he talking about? And also, on a more practical note, that thing that we just described, that is not just unique to the Old Testament either. That's actually how the church works for us as well. Theologians talk about this idea that there are really two churches two churches, what they call the visible church and what they call the invisible church. The visible church is just how we describe, I mean, like, look around, right? It's, it's everyone who, who claims to be a Christian and, you know, and outwardly would just say, yeah, you know, I'm a part of the church, right? Um, it's when you read that 75% of Americans are Christians. That's the visible church. Um, and then the invisible church is those who are truly trusting in Jesus and being saved those who have really repented of their sins and placed their faith in God. And that isn't everyone in the visible church. I think we all get that, right? And so the invisible church is the true church, but it's also invisible. Yeah, I can't look out and be like, oh, you know, I see the invisible church. I'm always kind of dealing with the visible church, and I don't get to skip over that. But it's important for us to recognize that because our calling is to always to seek for ourselves and for those we know to be a part of the invisible church. Just being part of this visible thing, right, isn't enough if it's not true inwardly and really as well. That's how it is, Paul's saying, for Israel, right? There's sort of visible Israel, and then there was this faithful remnant, the invisible church then, and that's how it is for us today. And we are always called to seek to be part of that faithful remnant. So that's step one in Paul's answer, that God is faithful to those in Israel whom he shows his grace to. And then we move into the second section, starting in verse 11. He says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So Paul has just said that many in Israel have been hardened and that only this faithful remnant is being saved. And he knows some of his readers might be thinking, well then, so much for those other people, right? You know, we're, we're just done with them, forget them. And so that's what Paul starts to safeguard against here. So in verse 12, he warns against the sinfulness of that kind of attitude. 
We should never delight in someone being hard to the gospel. Our heart should always be to hope for people's salvation and to hope that they would trust in Christ. He says in verse 12, But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then Paul speaks specifically to the Gentiles in the church in Rome. In the ancient church, um, there's this racial divide we've talked about before between Jews and Gentiles that lies behind a lot of this question. And at times, Paul calls out the Jewish part of the early church for their racism against the Gentiles. And here, he's calling out the Gentile part of the early church for their racism against the Jews. Um, and he's calling them out and saying, he's saying, yes, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And maybe because of that, you've gotten the impression that I think you guys matter more, but you don't. That my heart is still very much for my people Israel as well. And ultimately, he says, that's because of his hope for the beautiful things that come from their salvation. Verse 15, he says, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You shouldn't delight in their rejection, but rather think how much greater it would be for them to also be welcomed in. Notice that reference to the resurrection of the dead, which we'll come back to in a minute. And notice there's this pattern that Paul is starting to build, where God hardens Israel so that Gentiles might be gathered in, but that that ingathering is meant to make Israel jealous so that they might believe as well. We start to see that pattern. And if you're really paying attention in all of that, you're thinking, but what Israel are we talking about here? And that's a good question, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, let's keep going. In verse 16, Paul starts to give this image that he uses to try to explain all of this, okay? So in verse 16, he starts with this general statement. He says, if part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And this is this way of picturing what he's been talking about in the last few verses. He's saying, look, Israel was God's chosen people. And right now, some of them are in rebellion, but that shouldn't make you despise them because if they're God's chosen people down at root, right, we should still recognize and appreciate that fact about them. Um, to use modern language, um, Paul's saying that, look, like, I mean, as much as the visible church might have lots of people in it that aren't really Christians, we should still appreciate and have hope for the visible church, right? Not just the invisible one, because this is still God's church. And that's also setting up this picture that Paul then uses, starting in verses 17 and 18. He says, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. All right, so this is Paul's image he's going to use now, okay? So Israel, he says, is like God's people, and so it's like an olive tree. And Israel as a whole is like that tree whose roots rest in God's promises. And in the present, Paul says, some of the branches are being broken off from that tree, and branches from a wild tree are being grafted in, all right? 
That image would have been familiar in Paul's world. That might sound weird to us, but here's the deal. When, if you kept things like olive trees, here's what you would do. You would, um, you would look at the tree, and some of the branches wouldn't have any olives on them, and what you would do is you would cut them off, right? And then you would graft in these other branches. And this is a picture of that, because, I mean, people still do this in the modern world, but you would find another tree, and you would cut off branches that are bearing olives, and you would actually, like, cut open the branch and stick this other branch in and, like, tie it up, And over time, the tree would actually grow that branch into itself. It would grow up and heal around that branch, and it would actually become a part of the other tree. So Paul is saying that that's what's happening, that some in Israel, the the hardened, the faithless, those people in Israel are being cut off. And meanwhile, some who are from this wild olive tree, the Gentiles, people from outside of Israel, are being grafted in like that, and that that's what's happening right now. Let me note one thing that means theologically before we keep going. Um, some of you might have grown up in a theological tradition that, that talks as if there's two different peoples of God, that there's sort of Israel and the church, and they're these two separate things from each other. They're two separate peoples of God. And um, there, are, there are Christians who hold that view. Um, our church and our tradition does not hold that view. And the reason is because... We don't think it fits with the Bible, and Romans 11 is one of the good reasons why we don't, right? If you look at Paul's argument, he is not saying that there's two peoples of God. He's saying that there's this one people of God, and that what's happening now in this age is that Gentiles are being grafted in to that one people of God. That the church isn't a separate thing. It's the same people as Israel were. That the Old Testament is part of our scripture and Abraham is our spiritual father, even though we aren't ethnically or biologically his descendants, that the church is Israel in this new covenant age. And I know for those of you that think about these kinds of things that you might have a lot of questions about that and about what it means when we think about Israel today. And we'll touch on that a little as we go on. But first, let's keep working through the text. So Paul then gives a warning and starts in verse 18 about all of this. He says, don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So he says, this is true, this is happening, but don't think then that you're somehow better than those branches that are being cut off, right? Paul's saying that's not the case. It's not that the church has replaced Israel and God's affections. It's that the Gentiles in the church have been brought in to Israel. And he spells it out in the next few verses. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So he's saying, don't have this attitude that says, well, look at me and how great I am, right? These branches have been broken off and now I've been grafted in. Paul says, no, like that wasn't because of how great you were. The branches were cut off because of their unbelief and you were saved only by grace and faith you had in Jesus. And that means that if anything, You should have a kind of soberness and fearfulness about it. Because if these natural branches were cut off because of their faithlessness, don't think that you're going to fare any better. That's his warning in verse 22, ultimately, then. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, 
provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. He says, if faithless Israel is cut off, it's not going to go any better for you. That is why, as we have done a number of times over this year, when we talk about Israel, we don't apply it to sort of Israel today usually, but to our own ways of using religion and self-righteousness to miss the gospel. Because we, um, because we can be guilty of that very same failure, right? That that's the whole point of Paul here. That God does not save the best and the brightest. He does not save the most religious and the most morally upright. That's something that Paul's pointed out over and over in Romans. God saves the broken and the needy and the downcast and the weak. The reason he does that is not because he dislikes morality or strength, right? I think we hear that and we can be like, well, so does God like dislike people being moral or religious? It's not that, but it's, it's that God usually saves the lowly because they're the only ones who are actually willing to recognize their need for him. As a pastor, I spend a lot of time around people who are physically kind of brought to the end of themselves by old age or by sickness. And one of the hardest things they, those people will often say is that um, they're in this situation where they have to admit that they need help from people and ask other people for help. And that's hard, they say, but it's something that they have to learn to do because they, they just can't get by without it, right? But the thing is, all of us could actually use help from other people. It's not the case that only those people are in positions where they need friendship or they need assistance or they need advice or care. The difference is that we are okay enough that we're able to avoid acknowledging that fact. It's like, it's like if I didn't know anything at all about cars, right, then I would just take it to the shop and I would have them fix it. I know a little bit about cars. And so what happens in practice is that I'm out in, my, in the garage for like six hours, right, pinching my thumb with the wrench and kind of muttering under my breath. And my wife comes out and she's like, you know, why don't you just take this into the shop? And I'm like, no, I can fix this. And I really can't, but I can get close enough that I'm not willing to admit that I need to ask for help. That's how it works in Christianity, right? That God brings in these people who are lowly and needy and downcast, and he cuts off these people who are religious and self-righteous because those people are good enough that they aren't willing to admit that they need help. They aren't willing to put their faith in God. That's why it's so foolish to expect that um, the church is made up of the best and most moral people in the world, by the way. I think sometimes Christians have this idea that Christians are supposed to be like the best people in the world and that all the people out there are supposed to be terrible or something. And that's the opposite often of what's the case, right? Often some of the most moral, most put together people are outside the church, but that's because God doesn't save the strongest and the best. God saves those who put their faith in him as he shows them grace. And that can be a challenge to some of us. I think some of us wrestle sometimes with the gospel of God's free grace because we're kind of strong on our own. We're doing okay. And it isn't that God won't save us, but it is that we need to learn from the least and the lowly the truth of our own situation. That I need to learn from those people who just recognize their need of God, how much I need him too, and cause me to realize that too.
But so that's, so Paul's argument so far has been this then, all right? He says, first, God is still saving this remnant from Israel, but many in Israel are also hardened. And we shouldn't look down on the rest of Israel, though, because their hardness is not a result of us being better than them. It's rather that in many ways we're the lowly and the needy and the broken ones who, who are willing to have faith in Christ, and they're cut off because they're, um, they're not willing to do that. But then there's still a final part of Paul's answer. And so in verse 23, um, he starts, he's still using the image of a tree and branches, but he shifts the discussion. He just said, but if you, you know, if you turn to unbelief, you'll be cut off. And now he says, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily Will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul says, you've been grafted into this thing unnaturally and saved by grace, but that means that you can't look down on or discount these people in Israel, even though right now they're rejecting Jesus, because, um, because if we are people saved by grace like that, then of course God could save them too. I mean, honestly, what Paul's saying is if even you heathen, unbelieving Gentiles could trust in Jesus and be saved, then man, then overcoming this unbelief in Israel would be easy. And Paul's going somewhere with that in a minute. But that just really struck me, too, as I worked through this text, that attitude. I think we often, um, we often focus on God's grace as something that is hard to believe, because it is. It challenges our pride and our self-righteousness. But it's also beautiful because it means that God can save anybody, right? That's what Paul's saying. God can save anybody. And the proof is that he saved someone as crazy as you. There's this tendency in the church to talk about people on the outside as if they are enemies, as if they are threats. And we learn that a lot from, um, from our culture, I think, where we're kind of trained. Everyone's being trained right now to view everyone outside as enemies. But... Um, but in the gospel, there are no enemies. There are only opportunities. Grace means that anyone can be saved. I mean, Paul, who's writing this, right? He was a Pharisee, and he hated Christians, and he literally, he literally worked to kill and throw them in prison, right? That was what he was doing, and he's on his horse off to arrest and throw Christians in prison, and Jesus appears to him, and bam, right? He's saved. Grace means that anyone can be saved. I mean, I was saved, right? Somebody as messed up and sinful as me, God showed grace to and saved. Grace means that anyone can be saved, and that means that even that the person that you struggle to imagine it ever happening can be, that even your worst enemy, even the person most opposed to it, can be saved. The church is not full of um, people who who are, um, who are all alike, except in sin. Rather, it's full of people who come from every different place and who Jesus draws together by his grace. Okay. So there's that, but then we come to Paul's final argument. And this is where there's some debate about how to interpret these verses. So first, let's just kind of walk through them, and then let's try to explain um, how to read them. So first, in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. And sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part 
until the full number of the Gentiles have come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So there's been this hardening. Many in Israel are hardened until the Gentiles have been gathered in. And then in the rest of 26 and 27, Paul quotes this promise from Isaiah about Israel's coming salvation. And then verses 28 and 29, Paul says, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election, God's choice is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So right now, many in Israel oppose the gospel, Paul says, and they are your enemies. But because of God's choice and God's promises to them as a people, they are, all still, they are also somehow still beloved. And then in 30 and 31, Paul repeats this idea that God's mercy to the Gentiles should lead to hope for mercy for the Jews as well. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. And then in verse 32, the summary, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So God's bound everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them, Jews and Gentiles alike. So what does that mean? Basically, this is going to be a little bit of an oversimplification, but basically there's three ways to interpret this passage. And they, the easiest way to summarize it is to take the end of Romans 11.26, where Paul says, and in this way all Israel will be saved, and to ask, what does Paul mean there by Israel? Right? Um, because remember what we said, Paul's using this word in a couple of different ways in this chapter, and it can be hard to sort it out. So this is our attempt to say, what does he mean when he says that all of Israel will be saved? The first way is to read Paul as saying that all Israel just means faithful Israel, right? Just means elect Israel. So he's just saying that God saves Israel because there are some Jewish people who've become Christians, like him. Um, and so... He says that's kind of all that we should expect, but that that is all Israel being saved. So in practice, that view would say that that we shouldn't really understand there as being anything unique about ethnic Israel after the point where the New Testament was written. That Judaism and Christianity parted ways almost 2,000 years ago, and some Jews became Christians, and some Jews rejected Jesus, and for that second group today... Being Jewish is basically the same as being Swedish, right, in in that first view. Um, But that view has some problems in this text. And the biggest one is that Paul seems to be talking about something in the future that's going to happen. So, like, if you look at verse 25, again, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Right, the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That does not sound like just something that happened in Paul's day. Right? That sounds like something he's talking about that's going to happen in the future. That also doesn't fit with the way that Paul references things like the resurrection of the dead earlier when he talks about Israel's belief, which again sounds like it's pointing towards the future. And it doesn't fit with, um, with the way that Paul talks constantly about this idea that Gentiles being gathered in is supposed to make Israel jealous, which we noticed a couple times as we walked through. So I don't think you can just read this text and say that in terms of our world, it means nothing, right, for, for ethnic Israel. 
Then there's a second view, um, and that's that all Israel being saved, back there in verse 26, means all Israel, including every member of hardened Israel. That Paul's saying that everyone who is ethnically Jewish is saved, even if they reject Jesus, and even if they don't have faith in him, that if you can plot your genealogy back in the right way, you know, back to somebody who's Jewish, or, I don't know, you have like the right percentage or whatever of your DNA, that you are just saved by dint of that. Um, If you can't tell, I don't think that view really works either in this text. And the basic reason is the book of Romans. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, makes this case, starting in chapter 2, that everyone is saved only by faith in Jesus, regardless of whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. Um, In fact, even here in chapter 11, he references that several times. So like in verse 23, he says, And if they, Israel, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So Paul's talking about Israel's future salvation, but he says it only happens if they do not persist in unbelief. So salvation is only and has always been only through trusting in God's grace to save us. And that's how it was in the Old Testament, and that's how it was in the New. And so a view that just says that just by having a certain ethnicity, you don't need to have that faith and belief, that doesn't work either. So if neither of those views work, then what is Paul saying here? Well, the answer, I think, is in the final way to read these verses. And basically, it means that all Israel, um, Paul's talking about ethnic Israel, not in the sense that every single individual of ethnic Israel will be saved, but in the sense that, um, that there will be a great revival among people who are ethnically Jewish before Jesus returns. Um, that many who are in ethnic Israel will embrace Christ and be grafted back into the tree before Jesus returns. There's this pattern that we mentioned that's repeated in this chapter a bunch of times in 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 25 and 26, and it's that many in Israel reject um, Jesus, and this leads to this great ingathering of the Gentiles, but that ultimately leads many in Israel to then trust in Jesus and be saved. Um, And that, that pattern makes sense if that's the way you read it. And in addition, it makes sense of the language of things like the fullness of the Gentiles being gathered in, and that reference to the resurrection of the dead, right? It's talking to something that's going to happen um, just before Jesus comes back. So that's Paul's answer, all of that, um, in two parts um, to that question, has God rejected Israel, right? He's saying no for two reasons. One, that he is saving a faithful remnant throughout history. And two, that at the end of history, God's salvation will ultimately cause a great many from within ethnic Israel to return and trust in Jesus for salvation. So we just covered a lot of ground there, and I feel like we potentially raised a lot of questions. So let me just touch on a couple of those questions and then talk about a few applications briefly. First of all... um, I know throughout kind of some of what we've said, some of you might be scratching your heads a little bit because you're trying to square what we just talked about with this other theological idea you've kind of inherited, which is that um, before Jesus returns, political Israel will be reestablished and the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will start to be made there Um, because this doesn't quite sound like that. And um, man, I don't have time to get into all of that, but... um, 
But yeah, that idea that political Israel, national Israel, and the rebuilding of the temple and stuff is part of the end times, um, there are Christians who hold that view. That is part of an idea called dispensationalism that was created about 150 years ago by a guy named John Nelson Darby. And I would be happy to chat with you about that, but let me just say that about this view. Um, Our denomination and our theological tradition and the Westminster Confession that was written 400 years ago that, you know, we hold as our theological statement, um, it disagrees with dispensationalism. And it is um, fine for Christians to disagree, but without digging into it, that focus on political Israel comes from the fact that dispensationalism is that view that holds that there's two people of God that are separate from each other, right? That's what it rests on, is that idea that Israel and the church are two separate things, And for the reasons we kind of mentioned earlier, I just don't think that works. But I'd be happy to visit more if you want to talk about that. And then second, some of you hear that stuff about the end times and Jesus coming back, and that raises a whole other set of questions too. And again, we don't have time to dig into all of those questions. But um, let me just speak to one of those questions. I think sometimes our instinct, when we hear something like, It seems that there will be a great revival among ethnically Jewish people, and many of them will trust in Jesus before he comes back. Our instinct is to immediately start trying to figure out whether or not that is happening right now. And um, we are looking for the signs of the times to try to figure out when Jesus will come back. And don't do that, okay? (laughs) That is, that's not the way that texts like this one are meant to be read. Um, There's this idea of signs of the times in the New Testament, but it doesn't mean signs you use to figure out the date when Jesus comes back. It means signs of this age, right? Signs of the age between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. These are signs that we're living in that age. Um, When you think about Jesus coming back, instead just simply think about it this way. It's that we should obey like Jesus is coming back tomorrow and plan like it's a long way away. All right? We should obey like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We shouldn't put off trusting in him. We shouldn't put off loving or doing good to other people. Right? We should obey as if he's coming back tomorrow. But you shouldn't build your bunker. Right? You shouldn't cash out your bank account. You should plan as if it could be a long way away. Because that's what scripture says. It could be this afternoon or it could be 5,000 years from now. And I don't know. And I need to factor both of those into the way that I live. Okay? So that's Romans 11 and Paul's ultimate answer to that question about Israel. As we close, let me just suggest three general things that struck me as I spent time sitting in that text this week. First, I think this chapter should make us appreciate our history. The church did not appear out of nowhere. God has been at work since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob building this people up, and we are a part of this thing that is a lot bigger than us and a lot older than us. I often hear Christians talk as if, the, as if Christianity started like 50 years ago and it won't survive the next generation or the next election, right? And, and there is, as you recognize the, the length and breadth of this history of what God is doing, that should give us instead a settledness and a soberness that God has been building his people for thousands of years. And if Jesus doesn't come back, he will continue building them for thousands of years more. And we're just one brief, bright moment in that bigger work. And there's a peace, I think, that we can find in that. Second, I think this chapter should give Christians a specific hope that those in ethnic Israel would embrace Jesus and a specific respect for their place and heritage. 
That is not something that we discuss a lot, I think, um, and that's fine. Um, but we should hope and love all people, but there is a special place that Scripture seems to hold for those who are within ethnic Israel. And so we should have a heart for evangelism and an appreciation and respect for people in that place. And then lastly, and this is the big one, God is at work in the world. That's the thing I was reflecting on, right? Paul, in like one sentence, will describe these whole sweeps of human history that God has hardened some of his people so that he can gather in people from all of the nations, and then ultimately that will draw even people from Israel back in. And that's, that's this sweeping story of God working salvation in the world. That's what Paul is ultimately talking about. And that is what's happening in our world right now today. That the gospel is going forth to the nations and people are being saved and the church is being built and communities are being changed. God is at work doing that right now. He's saving people even like us, as Paul might put it from this chapter. And that should give us a heart that rejoices in what he is doing and lives that are confident and hopeful because he is on the move. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you um, for the work that you're doing of salvation in history among all nations. I pray that you would give us a humility and a reliance on grace and a hope in Jesus. Uh, pray that you would give that to us today and that we might continue in that as your people. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, from whom life truly comes. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?
always good to worship with all of you this morning. Um, please, first of all, if you don't know the people standing next to you, introduce yourselves. You're going to have an eternity to be stuck together, so you might as well start getting to know each other um, now. And, um, and, and in that note, too, please join us for a time of fellowship after the service. We've got coffee and treats and things. If you'd like to visit with any of the stuff that we covered, I say this from time to time, I'm really always happy to chat with you if you have questions about that. Um, and just on a practical note, we have... Um, we do have the adult discipleship class going on today, but we don't have any of the other Sunday school confirmation things going on. So um, if you're wondering, if you're sitting in a classroom somewhere wondering where the people are, that's why. Um, please join us next week as we prepare to celebrate Advent and go with the Lord's blessing. Jesus Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. May that be your hope and your comfort until in the resurrection of the dead we get to share in that joy eternally. Amen.